Amen. You got a very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using the horde. I don't think it means what you think it means. All right, let's go Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is real, real simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of super important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. If you don't have a Bible outside of this place, that makes it a little difficult to come to know him, doesn't it? So if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible. If you don't already do have a Bible, don't steal our Bibles. That's a jerk move, all right? But... You can have a Bible if you don't have one yet. So Habakkuk chapter 1. Some of you are like, where is Habakkuk? I don't know. He's a minor prophet. He's in the Old Testament. All right. He's kind of go go to the middle to Psalms and start going to your right. But there's going to be a bunch of books moving real, real fast after you get past the Isaiah's and Jeremiah's and Ezekiel's. All right. Habakkuk's in the Old Testament. All right. Uh, After Micah and Nahum, uh, just before Zephaniah and Haggai. Some of y'all didn't know how to pronounce those words either. All right. Uh, Now, I tell you the same thing. Um, I tell you, uh, my kids in my Wednesday night kids ministry class, this is a place where it's okay to not know. But it's also a place where we want you to learn. So trust that table of contents or just learn how to spell Habakkuk for your phone app. H-A-B-A-K-K, the double K. You got to get the double K, U-K. H-A-B-A-K-K-U-K. Habakkuk chapter one. Um, So I don't know of anybody who really just hates the movie The Princess Bride. Uh, It's just clean fun, right? Uh, You may have a neutral opinion about the movie, but no one like hates the movie. All right, it's, just, it's just this movie that's full of super memorable characters who say these super memorable witty lines all throughout the movie. And, but there's just this one line for me that just quickly rises to the top of the pile. Inigo Montoya, the Spanish swordman, uh, on a mission to avenge his fallen father, right? Uh, he's teamed up with Vizzini and Fezzik, and they're trying to escape the man in black. And the Vizzini, the, the short bald guy, keeps using the word inconceivable incorrectly over and over again by this point in the movie. And man, uh, Inigo, he's just ready to call it out. You keep using that word. But I don't think that means what you think that means. Um, Now, if you're a fan of the movie, you may have a different favorite line. Uh, It's okay. You're allowed to have a different favorite line. Uh, Some of you may think the best line in the movie is something else that, uh, well, the first time that Inigo and Wesley meet. Just after this little scene takes place, the man in black, Wesley, finally makes it to the top of the cliff, and uh, Inigo is going to fight him in a sword fight to kind of stall him. He's hoping to kill him and all that kind of stuff. But they've got some respectful back and forth. And so uh, I got a little meme here. It says, uh, Inigo's like, who are you? Well, no one of consequence. And which Inigo applies, I must know. Get used to disappointment. <laughs> to which Inigo goes, okay. <laughs> and they begin their sword fight. For others, though, you think the obvious best line is Prince Humperdinck trying to convince Princess Buttercup, and yes, those are their names, if you haven't seen the movie. Princess, uh, Prince Humperdinck trying to convince Princess Buttercup to marry him instead. She, she wants to marry Wesley. She thinks she's going to be rescued by him. And, well, Humperdinck has stalled the process so that Wesley can't make it. All right? And so he offers her, please consider me as an alternative, source, or alternative to suicide. Some of y'all, that's a life verse for your dating life. 
So the Princess Bride, man, it's just really good, clean fun, full of really memorable stuff. It's hard not to like it. And you're obviously allowed to like any line that you want from the movie. You'll just have to live with being wrong your whole life. Because for me, the best line in the movie is obvious. And it's because it's the most practical line in the movie. And Nigo Montoya, I don't think that means what you think that means. The reason why it's so practical is because I find myself thinking uh, this line on a pretty regular basis. Usually it's an internal monologue. Sometimes, though, my brain doesn't move as fast as my lips move, and it's an external monologue, and I get myself in trouble. But anyways, I think this line way more often than I like to admit to in public. I don't think that means what you think that means. And I'm sure you've probably been in situations just like that, right? Like, we've all been in situations like that. There's this thing, and for whatever reason, people are, are misusing it, misquoting it, misapplying it, mis- whatever, misrepresenting it, and they end up twisting that thing into something that it was never actually meant to be, right? And there are all kinds of stuff that we do this to in our culture. Misconceptions are everywhere. Uh, so for the last several weeks, all throughout this series, I've been uh, kind of sharing with y'all some of the funniest ones that I can find, common misconceptions in our world. And so I've got a few more for you this morning. Ready for number one? Despite the fact that we think that they can match pretty much anything, chameleons do not actually change color to match their environment. What? They change color all the time. It's just not to blend into their surroundings. All right? Chameleons change their color based on emotion and temperature change. It's kind of like a living mood ring, right? Some of y'all are old enough to have had those. <laughs> all right, yeah. They're kind of like a living mood ring. When they're happy, they can be a bright green color. When they're really stressed, they turn a really dark color, almost black. All right? And so they have several different shades based on, you know, depending on what we think their emotions are at the moment. They, they change color based on temperature needs. Like if they need to absorb more light, guess what? Darker colors. Yeah, that's what happens. All right? So you might normally um, see them in a cartoon or advertising the color matching capabilities of printer paper. All right? But what you will never see a chameleon do is playing poker because they wear their emotions on their skin, right? (laughs) They can't hide anything because they're just, you know, they just tell you the truth. All right, number two, even though we use them to insult other people's eyesight all the time, bats are not blind. Not even a little bit. There is no species of bat that's blind. Not a one. But that's the, the phrase we often hear, right? You're as blind as a, yeah, it's all over the place. Plus, they have that really cool echolocation thing, and so why do they even need eyesight? Well, most bats can see as well as, or sometimes even two or three times better than people can. So they can see you. (laughs) And when you add the echolocation thing on top of that, they can really see you. So that either terrifies you or is really, really cool, right? When you add the echolocation thing to the mix, mix, they're actually crazy awesome. Is it any wonder why John Scoggins geeks out about them so much? Those of you who know John know, like every church needs a bat expert, especially if you have a belfry. Like we don't have any bats up there, but if we ever get any bats, we got our expert on lockdown. All right. Misconception number three. And as a pastor, this one gets me a little worked up sometimes. A prodigal is not someone who is rebellious or has come home. That's the way we use the word though, right? The prodigal has returned. That's definitely the way we use the word in our culture. It's used on TV shows. It's used in movies. I've even heard somebody be called a prodigal when they went outside, forgot their keys, and have to come back inside to grab their keys. The prodigal returns. But prodigal, 
A prodigal is not, or the prodigal son in, in Luke 15, he's not called a prodigal because he finally came home. It's, it's not even because of his rebellion. The word prodigal literally means extravagantly wasteful. Extravagantly wasteful. That's what happens in the story. He goes off and blows all of his inheritance doing what? An extravagant waste, right? He wasted all in an extravagant manner. Him getting the nerve to make the journey back home is not the point of the story. His father joyfully embracing him after his terrible sin is the point of the story, right? That, that if you know the story, that's what's going on. The son is extravagantly wasteful and the father is extravagantly gracious. That's why it's called the prodigal son. And so we're all going to stop using that word in the wrong way, right? Right? Is that wishful thinking? No? Okay. All right. But I've got a fourth misconception for you. Even though we're still going to slip up and use it wrong come this Halloween, it's going to happen. Frankenstein is not the name of the monster. And some of you are thinking, ah, you're right. I knew this one. Frankenstein is the name of the doctor. You're still wrong. Because in Mary Shelley's original book, the creator of the monster is not a doctor. His name is Victor Frankenstein. He studied some things that doctors would study, but he's not a doctor. <laughs> if he were, probably wouldn't be making a monster, right? Therefore, the name of the monster is Frankenstein's monster, but it doesn't really matter because we'll all forget and call him Frankenstein around Halloween anyways, right? It's just, it's just the way the world works. So whatever, all that work wasted. All right, so there are all kinds of misconceptions in our world, but the reality is that there are a lot of times a lot of misconceptions inside the church too, right? There are things that are in the Bible that either or that we attribute to the Bible that either aren't there at all or that are there but are misapplied and misquoted as something that we would call a proof text. And we've been learning throughout the course of this summer that a proof text is when you take something, make something mean something else, something it wasn't originally intended to mean by taking it out of its original context and repackaging it. Right? When you take something out of its immediate surroundings in the Bible and reframe it as something that it was never intended to, be, to mean. That's what a proof text is. Now, sometimes, sometimes this is done on purpose by people with nefarious motives, by people who are looking to undermine and looking to, to do discredit to God's word. But a lot of times, honestly, most of the time, it's really just done by people who don't know their Bibles well. It's a laziness thing that well, we fail to read our Bibles well and somebody quotes something incorrectly and somebody else goes, hey, that sounds really nice. And they quote it again and they quote it again and it just begins to pick up steam and carry on a life of its own, right? We all do this with all kinds of things in our world, but it's just as common in the church and, well, because no one ever actually steps in and goes, you know what, let's see what the Bible actually says here. Well, it ends up spreading like wildfire. Whether a proof text is done on purpose or not, the end result is always the same, right? Misinformation. And when misinformation happens in the church, well, that's a problem for a people who claim to follow and worship a God who calls himself the truth at times, right? Yeah. And so misinformation is no bueno. We, and so over the course of this little summer series, we've been looking at some of the most egregious examples of proof texting in the Christian subculture in the Bible. And just trying to set the story straight. We want to poke a little fun at ourselves, and, but also with some seriousness say, seriousness say, you keep using that verse. But I don't think that means what you think that means. Sound good? Got this week and next week. You ready to jump into it? Who's our offender this week? Habakkuk 1.5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a great work in your day that you would not believe if I told you. 
words from God to the prophet Habakkuk. Say hello to the revival verse, right? Like, I've heard this at the end of revivals. I bet you have too. If you want to remind yourself that you're on the winning team, if you want to pump yourself up just a little bit, that God is moving mountains and working powerfully as he establishes his kingdom among the nations throughout the world, then Habakkuk 1 has got a verse for you, right? It's the verse that we can quote at the end of an evangelistic rally to call people to action, get them excited about missions and show everybody that God's not done just yet. He's working powerfully. But you better buckle your seatbelts because we're told that not everything's going to make sense to us. It's going to be so big. It's going to be so massive. It's going to be so mind-blowing that you're not going to be able to wrap your head around every single thing that God is doing. Buckle up and hold on because this verse carries a punch, right? I mean, does anybody want to try to argue the opposite of this verse? Is God predictable? No? Nobody's going to go there? Can we telegraph what he's doing? I mean, he's the goat and all. I mean, that's obvious. But, I mean, it's been a while since the, you know, the Bible days. And he's lost a step or two. He can't keep up. That sounds sacrilegious to you? <laughs> a little bit? No, God shows his goodness and he shows his power by working just as powerfully today, just as wonderfully today as he did in past eras, just as miraculously, just as much for his glory, right? That's the way God works. But um, th- there is a question though, right? Like, wh- wh- what kind of great works is he doing? And is he gonna do? Because I'll be real honest, I'd like to get in on some of that, right? Like, wouldn't you? Can, can I just hang out while he does some of those works? I mean, I'm up for whatever he wants to do. I'll, I'll play as much of a role as he will let me. But like, like it says, I'm not going to understand everything. Can I just at least be a fly on the wall while he does some of these really, really great things? Because that would be kind of awesome. I, I want in on that. Where do I sign up? And so in the Christian subculture that we've created for ourselves, man, God's words here, they, they, they provide us with this call to greatness that we'd all be really, really smart to jump in on, right? But you don't just have to take my word for it. I spent a little time on Google this week, and here's what I found out. Saw the way that we typically use this first, and first up is the home decor, because all good proof texts need to eventually be marked 50% off at Hobby Lobby. You can get some nice cursive vinyl lettering that looks nice. Vinyl lettering is always good for a living room wall or a small group room or whatever. But I, I think I like the bolded look better because, hear me out, like I, I know my design friend in the back is going to no- understand this. The, the font there kind of has the air of like an old world travel culture, right? And so doesn't it kind of harken some wanderlust in us? Like God's talking about the nations, right? Like Let's put this on our wall, especially in the mission space at the church, and then everybody can get excited about what God's doing among the nations, right? But listen, if you're going to put a Bible verse on the wall, it's better to make a grand statement. Like, that one's only two to three feet wide. This one is like eight feet wide. And you can get it in hot pink. It's only 150 bucks. That's, that's in our, our decorating budget, right? Nothing says, hey, let's go get this, let's go make this mission happen, let's go do great things for God, let's sit back and watch God do these great things like an eight foot wide hot pink verse on the wall. Combo will definitely send the message that we are ready for God to do whatever it is God is about to do. But hey, 
Maybe vinyl lettering isn't your game. Maybe you think that's a little tacky. Maybe you like more of the framed kind of look. Yeah, you got that vibe going on. So you can get this really lovely print from Etsy. Support an independent artist instead of one of those faceless corporations, right? Stupid Amazon. <laughs> Always try to be socially responsible. It's pretty. Or maybe you've got more of a, a photography vibe going on. I don't know about you, but I'm naturally drawn to photographs. There's this thing in me that just kind of believes that faces tell stories, right? And so aren't we all kind of just drawn to great pictures of people's faces? It's a good picture. And you he, he got, he got this gentleman here who, who looks like he's from not America. I mean, it talks about the nations, right? So like that seems like an appropriate person to put on this uh, picture. Fine Art America is selling this really amazing photo with Habakkuk 1.5 on it. First talks about the nation, so it seems like an appropriate guy to put on there because he looks like he's from another part of the world. But so, what a great way to show everyone who comes into your home that man that you're into missions, right? You love the least of these, and you want them to see the great workings of God too, right? Decorations are fine and all, though, but like any standalone verse in Christendom, what this is really best used for is encouragement in our devotional time. And Habakkuk one five has got some options for you, just. Random Google search, start pulling stuff up. Different styles based on personalities. Some of you, uh, some of them even come with devotions that call you to persevere and to trust that God is going to do great and mighty things in your day today. Like you don't know what the day holds for you yet, but God does know what the day holds for you, and you won't believe the great and powerful ways that He's working. Right? Those are the devotionals that are attached to these pictures. You may not believe it yet, but God's going to blow your mind with how great and mighty and awesome today is going to be. Caleb even gets in on it. It's always a good idea to have encouragement during your morning commute. So as you're sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic, frustrated at the hand that God has seemingly dealt you for the morning, you can remember that, well, you don't see all the pieces of the mosaic yet, and God's going to somehow use this traffic to get you onto better things later today. What a verse. But listen, though. Eventually, As you mature in your Christian walk, you need to move, turn the corner from being someone who is encouraged by others to being an encourager. And there's no better way to do that than to uh, do it on Instagram. So get a buddy, take a picture of you with the sunset, draw the vignette in pretty tight, get an app to superimpose Habakkuk 1.5 over the top of it, and just watch those likes roll in, man. But the longer you do this kind of stuff, the more creative you need to be. You need to get some fancy lights in there and uh, that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a nice little effect. But the cream of the crop, though, when it comes to Instagram filters or Instagram fame is a candid angle with a vintage filter. Got a little nice little typewriter font on there. And, man, it's looking good. Everybody's going to be impressed with just how, how you believe that God's going to do mighty, mighty things today. That's how you can tell the real artists from the weekenders. But we haven't gotten into the big time yet because any verse in the Old Testament that talks about the nations must, and I mean must, be used as a missions verse. And I've got examples for you. After example, after example, after example, after example, after example, after example, and we keep going. Get a map, slap Habakkuk 1.5 on it, and hang it in the mission space down the hallway so that you can tell the world that God is doing big things among the nations. That's the way, (laughs) make no mistake, that this verse is used in our camp.
I'm going to do a great work in your days is used as a believe big things and then go do big things kind of verse, right? It's a verse that we like to use when we want to remind ourselves that God is the captain of the winning team. And if we're smart, we'll be on that team too. But we've been saying throughout this series that there's no distinction between what's out there and what's in here when it comes to our capability to proof text, right? Short of the grace of God, there go we. Uh, like if, if it weren't for God's grace holding us together, we're just as capable of blind spots. And so if we're just as capable of blind spots, is it maybe at all possible there's a blind spot when it comes to our understanding of Habakkuk 1.5? Maybe. What if God doesn't have missions or you zealously tackling your day in mind when he says this. So how about we look at what, how the Bible actually frames Habakkuk 1.5 for us this morning, right? Habakkuk chapter 1. Uh, in order to uh, set the stage for this, I've got to give you a little bit of history real quick. Um, Habakkuk was a prophet to the nation of Judah during a very, very specific time in the history of God's people. Uh, those of you who are new to the church thing, new to the Bible, uh, you probably don't know the story yet, but the Old, Old Testament history is really a roller coaster, right? Um, God builds up a ragtag nation of people to be his own possession. And there's nothing about this people, the Jews, uh, that, that has earned favor with God. There's nothing about them that makes God go, you know what? Those are the guys I want to love. All right, they've, they've, really, they've really earned this. No, over and over again throughout the Old Testament, in fact, he tells them that there's nothing about them that has earned favor with him. And yet, he consistently, persistently loved them anyways. He, he made them, himself known to them and he and near to them and he pursued them in spite of their sin, despite the fact that they constantly rebelled and rejected him. Over and over again throughout the story, God rescued them out of slavery in, in Egypt. He gave them a land of promise. He turned them into a powerful little kingdom. He gave them the law. He gave them the sacrificial system. And he raised up a man named David to lead them as king. And, and even though David had some terrible, terrible sin in his life, a major sin, God described him, though, as a man after his own heart. Right? Um, he used David to bless the nation of Israel in some massive, massive ways. And if you were talking to somebody in the New Testament area, about the history of Israel, they would point back to those days under King David as the greatest, most luxurious, uh, luxurious, the most amazing, spirit-filled time in the history of God's people. They all wanted to get back to the days of King David. God used David to bless the nation of Israel in massive, massive ways. And David defeated all the enemies around them, all their neighbors, and the nation lived in peace. You know, peace by the sword, but still they lived in peace. And although eventually David died, and he handed his kingdom over to his son Solomon. And God blessed Solomon just as much or even maybe more than he did David, right? Those of you who know the story, uh, God uh, came to Solomon in a dream. And he said, ask me for anything that you want. And what did Solomon say? Wisdom. Solomon asked for wisdom. Solomon was just smart enough to know, listen, this job is bigger than me. I better get some help. And so instead of asking for riches, instead of asking for power, instead of asking for whatever, he asks for wisdom. And God goes, I like that request. You can have all the wisdom there is, and I'll give you all the other stuff too. Right? And so he made Solomon the wisest man on earth, according to the Bible, and he Gave him immeasurable possessions. Immeasurable possessions. And so from an earthly standpoint, earthly standpoint, the tiny nation of Israel, they were living large, man. Borders are strong. Economy is booming. It's the pinnacle of Israel's existence as a nation. 
but there were also some massive storm clouds on the horizon. Despite their unprecedented success in several categories of interest, the categories that mattered most, holiness and right standing before God, quite lacking, quite lacking, and it didn't take long for things to just completely fall apart. God used Solomon to build the temple, a massive testament to to God's glory and his presence among the people, but Solomon also built temples to other gods. Not, not, Not a great thing to do if you're the leader of God's covenant people, right? Even though he had great accumulated untold prosperity for himself and his people, he also committed grave sin through idolatry and adultery. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he calls all of those great things he accumulated for himself vanity, right? In another place, he asks the question, what good is building up all of this stuff and all this acclaim and all of this fame if your sons are idiots and you're just going to wreck it all once you die? That's the Stephen Woodard paraphrase, but you get the point. It's also exactly what happened. Solomon dies and his son becomes the next king and he immediately does something stupid and the kingdom splits in two. That fast. The golden age of God's covenant people go through three kings and it's over. You got Israel in the north, the northern kingdom. You got Judah, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom never has a righteous king again. They, they last a couple hundred years, but they fall deeper and deeper and deeper into sin and idolatry every day. God has the nation of Assyria come in and wipe them off the map. Nice little children's Bible story, right? Do that one in Sunday school later. The nation of Judah, their decline was a lot more gradual. They'd have a sinful king followed by a righteous king, and then a couple sinful kings in a row, and then a couple righteous kings in a row. And and so their descent was a lot more gradual, but up and down, up and down for generations. But sinfulness did continue to grow. And the story finally gets to two kings in a row who were just especially devious, King Manasseh and his son, King Ammon, right? Both of them were openly idolatrous, led the, led the country into rampant sin. They, they lead Judah to worship the false gods of their neighbors, Baal and Molech and Chemosh. And these were the kind of gods that you had to worship them by sacrificing children to. It was a really, really, really dark time for God's covenant people, right? The temples in literal ruins. God's law has been spurned and literally lost. It's dark days indeed. King Ammon eventually dies and his son Josiah becomes the next king. What makes Josiah a noteworthy king is that all this happens when he's eight years old. Those of you who have had an eight-year-old in your house know how ridiculous that idea is. I wouldn't let an eight-year-old have a house key, let alone run a country. But wise or not, Josiah is the new king. And and we don't know much about his earliest years, but we do know that around the age of 16, he has a a come-to-God moment. He begins to uh, change things in the kingdom, reform and return things. He uh, pulls God's people back from idolatry. A few years later, he starts cleaning up the temple, and they find, just kind of stumble over a copy of God's law. And so they're like, maybe we ought to read it. And so that's what they do. Josiah reads the law and immediately he becomes convicted of sin because guess what? That's what God's law does. He calls for it to be read to the whole nation and they do that and the whole nation is convicted. 
And they begin to publicly repent of sin and reshape the nation of Judah to be consistent with that repentance. They, they reinstitute the Passover meal, which it had fallen away, which uh, they, uh, they begin to reform and, and refine every domain of society begins to, to experience and feel the effects of this revival. Can you imagine what this would look like in our own culture, right? Government and education and business and entertainment and agriculture, every domain of society begins to be shaped by this revival taking place in the nation of Judah. It's the kind of stuff that, that some of y'all have begged God to bring about here. And they're watching it happen in the nation of Judah. Judah is being transformed by this. It's the kind of revival that everybody longs and begs God for. And the rest of the reign of King Josiah, things in Judah are so, so good. But earthly kings don't live forever, do they? Even the really good ones. Now, at this time in history, there are three main powers on the world stage, and Judah ain't one of them. Judah's like Vermont. Like, I'm, I know I'm getting old, but give me a sharp stick and a five-hour energy. I think I can take Vermont, right? You've got Assyria. You've got Assyria. They're king of the hill, but they're in sharp decline. But they won't go down without a fight, right? You don't, you don't tackle the big dog without them causing some pain. All right. You've got Babylon, also known as the Chaldeans, who are absolutely brutal and they are on the rise. They're actively picking fights with all the nations around them and they are winning all those fights. It, it's not going to be long before Babylon's top dog. All right? By no account could you fairly call them the good guys. They are not, not nice in any way. All right? uh, so you got the Assyrians, you got the, the Babylonians, uh, and then you got Egypt. They used to be the big guy, but they were displaced by Assyria a generation before. But they're still hanging around, and they wouldn't mind being the big guy again, right? So Judah, Judah, the nation of Judah, is experiencing all of this revival during some major movement on the world stage. you got these three massive empires shifting and claiming each other's territory and trying to kind of get to the top of the pile. And obviously I'm filling in some details a little bit, but as far as I understand the story... Down in Egypt, King Nico II, Pharaoh Nico II, wants to pick a fight with Assyria. The tiny nation of Judah is in between Egypt and Assyria, if you look at the map, all right? And so Nico does the diplomatic thing first, and he writes a letter to Josiah asking permission to march his army through the nation of Judah. Josiah says, over my dead body. Nico II isn't going to take orders from Vermont. He wasn't really asking. So he marches his army through. Judah rides out to meet him in battle. And Ju uh, Josiah dies in that battle. Nico and the Egyptian army, they continue on to Assyria. They do their thing. And on the way back home, Nico appoints a puppet king over the nation of Judah to pay homage to him. And just like that, this unprecedented revival is over. This new king, he immediately brings, begins to bring back all of the, and undo all of the reforms that, that Josiah had done. He brings back all the, the other temples and the high places. He begins to lead, actively lead God's people back into idolatry. And everything falls apart. And Habakkuk, we believe that Habakkuk was witness to all of this. 
that he watched all of this go on. As, as a righteous man and a prophet before God, he watched his nation go from heinous sin to unprecedented revival and then back again. He watched all of those good things form only to watch them all dissolve away like they never even happened. And even more painfully, it seems like they ended up in a far worse place than they even started. It seems like the nation was more sinful than before the revival. And so if you're Habakkuk right now, how are you feeling about things? Like, like what's rolling through your mind at the moment? And have you got a few questions for God? Some of us would probably try to bottle those emotions up for fear of saying something out of line or you know, sacrilegious, whatever. Habakkuk, though, well, he takes a different track. You see that play out in verse 1. Read it with me. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. Verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Verse 4, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. All right, so uh, these accusations, they sound dangerous, right? Like, do you actually get to accuse God of these things? But the more honest you are, well, I think the quickly you fess up to thinking exactly those same thoughts at times, right? Habakkuk does here. Because God, where are you? Where are you? Don't you see what's going on here? I've been asking for help. I've been crying out. Do you even hear me right now? Are you planning on doing something about this? Surely. Like, are you even capable of doing something about this? Don't you see all this iniquity? Don't you see how your justice is being perverted here? You're just going to sit there and allow all this to, to happen? Is your law paralyzed? Habakkuk watches his nation, rise and fall in righteousness. And he's got some questions for God, right? Namely, how could you let this happen? Where are you right now? And anybody who has ever watched someone or something they love fall apart in sin like this knows exactly what Habakkuk's feeling right now. Why don't you stop this? Where are you? Now, most of the time, God doesn't give us a verbal answer to those questions. He's called us to press into him through his word and to press into him through the community that he's given us in the church family. But Habakkuk, Habakkuk gets a verbal answer. And it's actually our theme verse for the morning. Verse 5. God responds to him, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Yes! In a moment of pain, in a moment of crying out to God, in a moment of wondering if God was ever going to move, Habakkuk calls out to God and God gives him an answer. Ain't that a great day? And what's his answer? Look around, Habakkuk. I'm about to do something awesome that you won't even be able to wrap your head around. Right? That's what he says. And if you're in Habakkuk's shoes right now, aren't you excited about this news? Like, isn't that what you want to hear? You've pointed out all the injustice and God is ready to act. 
Everything's going to be set right again. You're going to get everything that you wanted. And obviously, God is going to fix everything. So just sit back and watch what he does. Woo! All is right with the world because God's going to move now, right? You're going to get exactly what you wanted. But hey, um, it may be a little beyond belief, but like, how about we join him in his work, right? Don't you want to be a part of what God's doing? Like, if God's going to do these awesome things, if he's going to fix all these problems, I want in on the plan, God. Let me have at it. I get it. I, I won't understand everything. Some of it's going to be too big for me, but I can at least hang out while you do these amazing, awesome things among the nations. Woo! Tell me what you need from me, God. I want to be a part of what you're about to do for your glory. You mentioned the nations. Do I need to go get my passport? I've got an idea. How about we put a map on the temple wall and we'll plaster what you said on the temple wall and everybody will understand just how awesome you are and how you're going to work among the nations. Yes! Man, oh man. You're going to show all those Gentiles how you're glorious and how your law is not paralyzed, and how your justice is not perverted. God, you're going to do big, big things. Sign me up. You know what, though? We trailed off a little bit, got on our own little track. God was still talking. I bet he spells out his plan for us. How about we look at that? Verse 6. For behold, I am rising up the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians we were talking about. For behold, I'm rising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Have you seen those guys? They're bitter and hasty. Who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Uh, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Why are we talking about them? They're... Horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. Verse 9, they all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Hey, you know how I said an earlier, earlier ago that the Babylonians could not be fairly painted as the, the good guys? They're, they're the kind of guys that if you were to find out that God sent fire down from heaven and just kind of destroyed them all, you'd be going, yeah, it seems about right. Probably earned that. There's no way to paint the Babylonians as the good guy. Even God himself here calls them a bitter and hasty nation. A nation that's violent, a nation that's arrogant, a nation that's known for destroying good things. A nation that's openly defiant of the nations around them and has no accountability because they see themselves, believe themselves to be their own gods. Habakkuk, he cries out for an answer from God. And God gives him his answer. I am going to raise up another nation an incredibly sinful nation to destroy Judah. Habakkuk wants God to uphold his glory and to vindicate his justice, and God tells Habakkuk that that is exactly what he's getting ready to do. 
He will bring judgment on the nation that cast a shadow over his glory. The nation of Judah. Now we've been pretending to be in Habakkuk's shoes for most of the morning, so what would your response be to that news? I bet it would be as predictable as Habakkuk's was in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk's response is, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't really mean that, do you? No way. No, no, no. I Listen, I know we're in a bad place right now, but have you seen the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation? Like, like, do you know what they're into down there? Surely you don't mean that. No chance. That's not, that's not, how, that's not how you do things, right? And so God answers him again in chapter 2. Verse 2 says this, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God tells Habakkuk, no, write this down. It's happening. Write it down. Make it easy for everybody to read. My judgment is coming. Don't think I'm dragging my feet on this. I don't think that I've forgotten or changed my mind here. It may seem slow to you, but it's coming. It will not delay. I think that this scenario is one that, that we all find ourselves in from time to time, right? Especially those of us who are followers of Jesus. Like, we know that God's wrath has been promised on this thing. We know what he thinks about this. We know what he said, what he plans to do about it. But because he hasn't done anything about it yet, we, or at least according to our time scale, we peek our head up just a little bit. Did he really mean what he said there? So we take another step. We test the water, we justify things, we proof text our own emotions even, reframe things. You know what, maybe God's cool with this. You know what, I bet he even celebrates this. How gracious is our God? And we puff up our chests a little bit because, you know, it's not like we're those Babylonians down there. Have you seen those guys? Like seriously, bitter and hasty. At least I'm not one of those Babylonian jerks. And God says, my law is not paralyzed. My justice will go forth. Write it down. Make it plain. Even if it seems slow and delayed to you, my judgment will surely come. Hey guys, I don't think Habakkuk 1.5 means what, what people who quote it in just about any context ever think it means. Easily one of the most egregious proof texts in the larger Christian subculture. So I've been telling you throughout this series that proof texts always make things worse than the original, right? That, that even though proof texts are an attempt to, to pretty things up and make things more palatable, that the result is always something that's worse than what God actually gave us, right? But that seems like a hard claim to back up on a week where the, the actual verse is God promising coming judgment on his own people. Like, how's that better? What's actually better in two very big ways. 
First of all, it's better because you don't want a God who ignores blatant sinfulness. You don't want that God. You don't want a God whose law is, and justice are actually, in fact, paralyzed. Where he's incapable of doing something about injustice. We all may wish that God's judgment on everyone else's sin uh, was big and our own was ignored, but to be left with a God who is incapable of making things right is an absolutely terrifying prospect, right? The alternative to a God of justice is to be left living in a world where justice is never possible, never achievable. Whether we're talking about murderers and thieves or Hitlers and Stalins or even if we're just talking about our own idolatrous hearts. You don't want a God of injustice. No, the God of the Bible, there's nothing unfair that is unseen and nothing unfair that will last forever. A lot of people in the world have been upset this week that, that Jeffrey Epstein has somehow managed to escape justice by killing himself. That is not what the Bible promises. Not even a little. He might be able to, to escape human courts, but... You cannot escape the justice of God. You can't. And you don't want to live in a world where people could. Habakkuk here, he gives us a picture that, that God is ever faithful to make things right. Ever faithful. Without qualifier. All things. The, and that's good news to any one of us who has ever been on the receiving end of injustice. We long for the day when God will make things right again. But there's a second way that the real meaning of Habakkuk 1.5 is better than the proof text. It's because it sets the stage for chapter 2, verse 4. The final part, says, or the first part of that verse says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up and is not upright within him. So the way that the Hebrew is structured here in verse 4, we think, we think that God is talking about the king of Babylon right now. All right? He goes on later to talk about the king of Babylon some more. We think we get the first little glimpse of that here. Um, and so God reassures Habakkuk uh, that, that no, his judgment is in fact coming on Judah. God moves on from there though to, to let Habakkuk know that after God is done using the Chaldeans, the wicked Babylonians, he will judge them too. All right? That's what he's going to go on down uh, and explain in the rest of chapter 2. And so at the first part of chapter 2 here, he begins to allude to that idea. And he really hits his stride in verse 6, but he, we get the little glimpse of that here. He says, that the Babylonian king, his, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. Uh, the God who acts with perfect justice will also, also hold the Babylonians accountable for their sin. He will not ignore that. There, his injustice is not, uh, his act of, of justice, his upholding of his glory, his, his righteous reign over a people does not only extend to the, the covenant people of Judah, but to all the nations, right? So after he's done using the Babylonians, he will also judge the Babylonians. That's what he's saying. And so the fall of Judah is coming. It's been promised, but it's not the end of the story. Even though Judah's story may be over, there's a season promised after his judgment. After his wrath is poured out. And so how do we get in on that after part? Well, the rest of verse 4 fills us in on that. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but. Some of the greatest verses in the Bible have a big old but in the middle of them. 
Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his what? Hey, you know what? That sounds an awful lot like some verses out of Romans that we were talking about before we shut things down for the summer, huh? What a crazy coincidence. In the middle of telling Habakkuk that God's people are just as guilty of sin and therefore deserving of punishment, deserving of his wrath, God also tells Habakkuk that there are some who will remain standing. In other places in the Bible, he calls them a remnant. It's not because they're righteous. (laughs) It's not even because they're slightly less sinful than all the other folks around them. Everyone in the world kind of hopes that God will grade on a curve, right? And so we do our best to stand next to a total jerk, those bitter and hasty Babylonians, so we can come off looking pretty good, right? Everybody on the planet thinks they're one of the good guys because they compare themselves to the sinners who are downstream from them rather than turning around and facing the righteous, perfectly holy God upstream. So if we just turn around and face off against he who is perfectly good, we don't look so shiny anymore. Grading on a curve is not good enough, but the good news is that there's no curve mentioned here. It's not what God says. He says that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous don't don't bring their own righteousness to the table. No, they're declared righteous because they put their hope and their trust in the God who is righteous for them. This is the gospel. In the Old Testament, like 700-ish years before Jesus steps onto the scene, you want to know why the, the reason why the threat of punishment for sin in order to protect God's glory is so important in Habakkuk 1.5? Like, you want to know why the, the proof text is so dangerous right there? It's because that is precisely the promise of judgment for sin. is precisely the ground upon which God shows his glory by saving those who don't deserve a relationship with him. You lose the true context of Habakkuk 1.5 and the gospel isn't as clearly seen in Habakkuk anymore. That sounds like a loss. Proof textures might be trying really hard to make a verse sound better, but make it more usable for their purposes, but they actually rob it of its eternity-shaping power. There's something even cooler that we can point to. See, the offer of salvation that's extended to the nation of Judah is no different from the offer of salvation that's extended to us today. It's the same offer. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us, but by Jesus' accounting, there's there's nothing that you can offer him that would somehow endear yourself to him. The only thing you have to offer is the sin that separates you from him. And yet, just like God continued to press in and make himself known to his covenant people in the Old Testament, just like God made a way for himself to be known by those who have no business knowing him, Jesus makes a way this morning too, right? He does so through the cross. Because of his death on the cross, he has paid the debt that is owed for our sin. He reconciles you to himself. Not because you're righteous. Not because you're slightly less sinful than the one next to you. And he says that the righteous will live by faith. By placing your trust in his finished work on your behalf. He can, you can be declared righteous this morning because he is pleased to give you his own righteousness. And so we want to give you an opportunity to respond to him in faith this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you. I'll be down here if you want somebody to walk you through what that looks like. But you can respond to him in faith this morning. 
If you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, you can respond to God's word too. You do that by repenting of sin and pressing into God. Listen, here's, a, here's a, an important question that probably needs to be asked. If, I'm not saying he is, but if God were to pull out a remnant today, would you be a part of it? Would you? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Habakkuk. God, we have these verses that we pull out of their setting and pull out of their context and we hold them up like champions for the things that we want to do, that we want to be a part of. But sometimes your word is a warning to us. Sometimes your word is, is intended to call us to the carpet, to convict us of sin like in the days of Josiah. Sometimes to ignite revival. Even the threat is used for your glory. Your justice is not paralyzed. Your glory and your righteousness, they're not skewed or perverted. They will be clearly seen among the nations. So God, call us first to repentance. As those of, in here who know you, claim to follow you, would you line us up with who your people are called to be? And then, and only then, would you let us be a part of what you're going to do among the nations? God, would you save some people today? If anybody's here who doesn't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them? Would you call people into faith and into your kingdom this morning? Help us all respond well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?